0: Hi, Shinzen. Hi, Serge. So we're going to talk about mindfulness. And these days, uh, mindfulness is such a good thing and so generally valued that often people have a sense that there is a right way and a wrong way to do it and kind of a little bit of a rigid uh, sense of what it might be. And in contrast, you have a very curious mind and a very curious approach to it. So do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, You could uh, say that um, I have an approach that I would call, if I had to find a word for it, modern mindfulness. It's... uh, to me a nicer way of saying what some people call secular mindfulness or mainstream mindfulness, but I'm going to choose to just call it modern mindfulness. And for me, modern mindfulness is uh, an interactive dance. It's science and contemplative practice co-evolving, mutually nurturing each other to optimize their evolution through time.
0: So can I stop you for a minute? Just, sure. it seems it's very uh, intense uh, when you use the word modern and you use word like evolution, that in a way already you're setting this up as something that's not an eternal thing, but uh, something that you know, evolves over time.
1: Yes, exactly. The paradigm that we get from uh, Indic civilization, which is actually shared by other civilizations, ancient Greece, uh, some of the thinkers uh, for one thing, the paradigm there is um, history goes down as things are better in the past, maybe even perfect at some point in the past, and then things deteriorate through these four yugas Uh, Or in Buddhism, they talk about in Japanese Buddhism, Mappo, the end of days, things are so bad now that, uh, you know, the Dharma is no longer available, etc, etc. So there's a notion from India that uh, the only thing that changes through time is things get worse. There is a notion from science that at least as far as science goes, science gets better. It gets deeper, it gets clearer, it gets broader, it's able to uh, perform more and more uh, powerfully uh, with regards to the practical issues of human well-being, etc. So there's a notion from science that we should expect things to get better. And they get better by the scientists having un, uh, uncensored but respectful disagreements that eventually lead to a consensus and converge to something. And that's how science grows. So I would say that one of the ways that science can nurture contemplative practice that's personal to me as a teacher is that my approach to mindfulness has been informed by the spirit of science. So part of that informing.
0: Oh, so just let me let me just repeat that because that's a big uh, thing: that uh, mindfulness and the, or the practice of mindfulness, the teaching of mindfulness, inspired by the spirit of science.
1: Actually, the word I used was informed.
0: Informed, informed but it's, by the, spirit it's of science.
1: the same as inspired. Um, it means that how I go about it has been strongly influenced by the way that scientists go about things. So um, that's one of the ways that I think that science can nurture contemplative practice. Now, contemplative practice can also nurture science. Um, As more and more scientists become meditators, um, they become better human beings and they become better scientists. And so that's good for everyone. And so, The nurturing goes in both directions. So one of the things that has already happened, as far as I'm concerned, for me personally, other teachers, uh, of course, are free to look at things in other ways. But my approach is quite thoroughly informed, influenced by what I call the spirit of science. Mm -hmm. And part of the spirit of science is to be very precise about uh, use of language, technical terms. Um, another part of the spirit of science is to actually assume that things can get better, at least that science can get better. And in fact, we'll have a natural tendency to get better. So I think that meditation practice, and I use mindfulness as a synonym for contemplative practice, I define it very broadly, intentionally. Um, I can defend that if someone's interested, but in any event Um, I think that contemplative practice, a.k.a. mindfulness, a.k.a. meditation, um, should and can improve both the conceptual framework and the techniques and the practices can evolve and get better with time. And uh, I think we should think in those terms. So, so that's- just let me
0: check something. Um, you you equate you use the word contemplative practice, and uh, in the um, context of using something, uh, defining it as informed by the spirit of science, I see an analogy that science uh, starts when people are actually curious and observing, and um, and so uh, defining the contemplative practice might be a way of observing. Uh, that is uh, appropriate for observing what we're observing in contemplative practice. The <laughs> yeah. works.
1: I would totally agree with that. I mm. think that's the way to initially think about things. Now, he, the reason I laughed is, um, so sometimes you hear people say evolution is just a theory. Right. So any anyone who uses the word just and the word theory together um, is ignorant of the nature of science. That's proof right there. No one that knows anything about science would ever say relativity is just a theory. Uh, Quantum physics is just a theory. Uh, Yeah. uh, Newtonian physics is just a theory. You don't use the word just in front of theory. You use the word just in front of hypothesis or conjecture, but you don't use the word just in front of theory. Theory is a big deal in science. To be an established scientific theory, you have to have passed a lot of tests. So um, we have this word theory that. Means uh, good science, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, a, a branch of science that's mature. Um, we now here's an interesting question. Most people wouldn't maybe think to ask the question, but I say words are important. Being clear about words, careful about words is important. So, what is the most, uh, what is the oldest Western word for meditation? or contemplation, or mindfulness, I use them synonymously. What's mm-hmm. the oldest Western word? Well, I mean, there is a word in Latin. I just mm-hmm. said it, contemplation. Um, the So that's an old word. But contemplatio in Latin merely translates a Greek word. So the Greek word is older. It was used in uh, pre-Christian antiquity for what we would now call meditation. It, it was used for other things also, but, and it was also the word of choice that the Christians use, the early Christians uh, to describe what you do when you go off into the desert um, and you're all by yourself and you're trying to perfect your soul. Mm-hmm. What is that endeavor called? Well, in Greek, it's called theoria, well, which is, Exactly the same word as theory. <laughs> so you were spot on, dude. You just totally nailed it. <laughs> Shin Zen Young gives good etymology.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. No, that's really interesting to see the the, the the divine in the etymology of theory, yeah. So we're talking about a contemplative approach. And do you want to talk a little bit more about mindfulness from that perspective, a contemplative
1: approach? Well, you mentioned that there's contention, you know, uh, what's the right way to do mindfulness, et cetera, etc. Cetera. You brought that up at the very beginning. Um, so I would say that part of the spirit of science is to develop what I would call semantic maturity. I created that phrase. Semantic maturity is how mature you are in how you use words. Basically, it's how sensitive you are to context. Uh, Same word can mean a little different or very different depending on the context. So that sort of context sensitivity, sensitivity to uh, connotation as well as denotation, uh, skill at formulating uh, clear definitions through making the right distinctions on one hand, but also making the right groupings on the other, et cetera, et cetera. All of this is a a kind of cultivatable skill uh, in the use of words. So I think that m- much of the problem of people being concerned or disagreeing about mindfulness uh, goes to, uh, to be blunt, a lack of semantic maturity in the dialogue, so that people are not cl- uh, clearly defining um, what they're talking about. Uh, and they don't bother to ask the interlocutor to clearly define what they're talking about. So now they're arguing back and forth and maybe there's not even an argument there because they haven't clarified what they're talking about. So I have chosen to define mindfulness as a synonym for contemplative practice. And there's, a definite reason why I chose that and it's pragmatic. Um, Now you could say, well, mindfulness needs to be more specific. Uh, Mindfulness is I'm mindful when I'm focusing on my breath and I'm not mindful any other time. Or I'm mindful when I'm uh, anchored in my body but everything else is not mindful. Or I'm mindful when I'm not caught in my mind, but everything else is not mindful. Um, or I'm aware of everything, but holding on to nothing. Now I'm mindful. That's the definition of mindfulness. So there is, of course, it, it is, of course, useful to have words that mean all of the above. That's true. But I would encourage people not to uh, define mindfulness that narrow because we may be, I said may, not are, we may be at a tipping point with human history where the uh, mutually positive feedback loop between science and contemplative practice, where that loop could gain enough momentum um, to radically alter the course of human history everywhere for the better. And radically means quickly. Um, but I just said we might be at that tipping point. It's it's not ridiculous that we might be at that tipping point, but I'm not claiming we are because that would be a um, uh, an irresponsible, intellectually irresponsible claim. But if we are at that tipping point, then what's more important? To have a word that means I'm aware of everything and don't hold on to anything, or to have a word that means broadly any and all contemplative practice done anywhere, East or West, ancient or modern, in relationship to science. Now, I'm going to claim to have a word that all human beings experience as safe. All major human populations would experience this word as being safe. Um, well, meditation doesn't quite do it because uh, you can't talk to fundamentalist Christians about meditation. It's threatening. Um contemplation contemplative practice is the right word but people don't really know what that means and it has a connotation even a denotation it's actually a western thing it's a christian thing uh, originally um and it, it carries baggage there is however a word that carries minimal baggage meaning it flies in the people's republic of china in that it will be paid for by the Communist Party. And it flies in Tehran, in that the Ayatollahs allow it to be taught. And the word for that thing that works for right-wing and left-wing, communist or religious fanatic, um, that word is mindfulness. How important is that word? That word is very important. Just
0: stop for a moment. So what we're talking about, we put this in the context of semantic maturity and the context of words, uh, but words not really clearly defined, not clearly understood, and the possibilities for conflict among human beings by using words that are not really uh, clear in their meanings. And with the ambiguity and conflict that starts from that. And so what we're talking about is finding a concept um, that has a broad enough uh, basis uh, to be stable, to encompass a whole broad range of experience. And one that uh, people can relate to. Uh, coming from very different horizons and perspectives, as opposed to a sectarian word that seems to say, this is my understanding of mindfulness, and unless you qualify in all possible aspects of what I see it as being, you're excluded. Um, so taking that you know, general human experience that is considered positive and, um, and, uh, and, and and encompassing it in that, in that
1: word. You know, it's really nice how you interrupt and then summarize. That's a really brilliant uh, interviewing strategy. I've never had that, Thank but I, I think it's really good. I'm going to ask future interviewers to do that. I think it's very user-friendly to an audience, especially when you have... <laughs> You have someone like me that you just press the button, (laughs) get out of the way, because it's just going to, you know, there's going to be a fire hose. Um, So. Once again, my friend, you have nailed it. What we need is you actually mentioned both sides. There's two desiderata. We need two things. We need a concept that is formulated in a way that um, does not, um, that is, uh, uh, that any reasonable person would agree with. We need a concept that is, makes sense to any reasonable person. Um, And I should say that almost all people are reasonable by my definition. Mm -hmm. Uh, So people that voted for someone that you might not like, uh, who's the president, uh, those people are still reasonable. Okay. Um, So any reasonable person. um, uh, In other words, you don't have to agree with someone. You can vehemently disagree, but you're still talking to a reasonable person. Um, Most humans are reasonable. There may be some cases, usually it's pathology or some very weird cases of extreme-ism, but most humans are reasonable. So something that most humans can agree upon. Um, And um, that's the first thing we need. And the second thing we need is a word that doesn't threaten anyone for that concept. We need those two things if this is going to go viral on the planet. So that's why I I have chosen to define mindfulness in a sense very broadly, but also to define it very specifically, but in a way that covers everything and doesn't turn anyone off. So I say that mindfulness is um, the the development uh, of a core set of attentional skills and then the application of those attentional skills to all dimensions of human well-being, all dimensions. So
0: okay. uh, a core a development of a core set of attentional uh, techniques
1: I would say skills skills as opposed to techniques uh,
0: yes, a development of a core set of attentional skills that are applicable to all aspects of human uh, activity.
1: yes, so there's just two concepts to master um, what is it and Why should we care about it? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: What it is, uh, mindful awareness, uh, uh, is uh, three attentional skills that anyone can see are useful. Concentration, power, sensory clarity, and equanimity. I can explain those, or they're on the internet. So, you can ask anyone to look back at their life experience, and they'll know examples of times when they're concentrated and they felt better and did better, times when they were scattered, they didn't feel as good and they didn't go, do as good, likewise for the clarity and the equanimity pieces. So these are things that if you point out to people what they've already experienced in this life they no one's going to vehemently disagree that it's a bad thing to have an ability to focus on what's important in the moment okay there's no contention in that mm-hmm. i don't care who you think should be president not, you're not going to argue with that that idea um so uh the um uh, so it is the Systematic development of these skills, or you can think of them as strengths.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They are attentional strength. So you you develop the core attentional skill. So develop the skill. So the question about what contemplative practice is? Well, it's developing a certain attentional skill set, um, and then of course. Uh, the natural next question is, "Why should you bother doing that?" And the phrase I would use is to maximize or optimize all dimensions of happiness, so that then raises two questions: What do we mean by happiness, and what do we mean by maximize by or another way to put it is it 's a what and a how mm-hmm. What is happiness? Give me a periodic table that covers everything. And then how do these attentional skills serve to increase happiness? How do they serve as part of optimizing happiness? Notice I didn't say that these skills are the whole picture in optimizing happiness, but I'm going to say that they're key, they're core, and I'll be able to define that in a very clear way, what I mean by that. So develop the skills, optimize a happy. That's it.
0: So, so I, I, I almost tempted to say it backwards, um, and to say, um, you know, as human beings, we want to have a good life, a happy life, by whatever definition of happy we go, um, and so that's a, that's a goal that no reasonable person could disagree with. Again, the definitions could vary enormously into what constitutes that happy life. Um, Then we go with the idea that there are some skills, some very basic skills that will make this goal possible. And that's, we talked about concentration, uh, clarity and equanimity. And then comes the practices that will develop these skills uh, and so it's all starting in a way from the goal, the means, and then the practices.
1: as they say in the u k, brilliant. <laughs> I love it. So you could start that at that end also. Um, uh, what would make you happy? You can do a motivational interview. what would make you happy? and they'll start to list all the things. And you say anything else, anything else, anything else, anything else. And when you've completed that, if you've drawn out of them um, skillfully um, everything, you've got this matrix of all the things that people call happy. <laughs> uh, and it, it represents a dimensional analysis of happiness. I distinguish 20 subdimensions myself. So in any event, here's what we mean by happiness. And by the way, we're defining it broadly enough so it's not just about how you feel, it's also about how you act. And it's not just about you being happy, it's also about your extended identity, your friends, your family, your community, your country, your, your company, the whole world, the observable universe, the multiverse, it's not just about one person. So we're defining happy to be broad and deep. Um, <clears throat> ordinary happiness, and it's gonna turn out that there's some extraordinary forms, dem- well, extraordinary dimensions of happiness that are independent of conditions. So in any event, um, so here's what we mean by the happy. And here's how concentration, clarity, and equanimity, in specific, function to optimize the happy. Um, and so a mechanism, plausible mechanism, whereby those three skills impact the 20 subdimensions of happiness that I claim I can uh, uh, present. So plausible mechanism, the attentional skills. Um, How is this related to reducing suffering, elevating fulfillment, understanding yourself at all levels from the individual psychological to the absolutely impersonal universal? Um, How is it related to positive behavior change, to being an admirable person, to being a skillful CEO? How is it related to... Uh, a call to service. How are these skills related to these dimensions of happiness? I can, I can give you plausible mechanisms. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now then the next, so that's a how question. Then the next how question is how do I develop those skills? Well, you need to do retreat practice. You need to do life practice in between retreats. You need at least one technique You need to get support. Eventually, it's useful to learn how to give support. If you have all those pillars in place for your whole life, it is highly probable that you will develop those skills to be not 10% happier, but easily 10 times happier. Um, So that's the message. Now, everything has been defined so carefully here um, that it can't put off anybody. It's, it's agreeable to any person. Um, now we need a name for this that's acceptable in all current cultures. Contemplative practice is the scientific name for it, but that carries baggage. Meditation is the common name for it, but that carries baggage. What carries least baggage is the other M word mindfulness? Um, if we're willing to define it broadly and carefully, we get something that um, is uh, is is optimal. Um, meaning, we have a name that doesn't cause any hiccups because it's linked to science and uh, I don't care what kind of government you live in other than Boko Haram, but that's, no, those aren't reasonable people. Those are insane fanatics. But unless you're living in Nigeria under Boko Haram, which isn't much of humanity, um, this name, is mindfulness, is okay because of its link to science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That, that's my response so, to
0: so, so So then we have come to um, a sense of the place of that activity or that set of skills uh, called mindfulness um, within the context of human existence uh, at an individual level, as well as the level of society. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and so that's um, uh, which is a very uh, much broader perspective. That say mindfulness defined as an individual pursuit um, with a sense of I have to uh, you know train in something that increases my performance, but we're putting it within that context. Of something that makes the individual and society perform better.
1: The idea is to create a formulation that's easy for any person around the world, regardless of their culture, that's easy for them to relate to, but at the same time can deliver um, the goods, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. meaning, At the deeper levels of freedom from suffering, at the deeper levels of maximal fulfillment, at the deeper level of understanding yourself, um, comes classical enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And an aspect of uh, skillful action which we have chosen to define as one of the goals of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Skillful action is not mindfulness. You can be a very mindful safecracker. You can be, meaning you have a lot of concentration, clarity, and equanimity. You can be a very mindful sniper, meaning you have a lot of concentration, sensory clarity, and equanimity. I know we would like mindful to be equated with a certain set of values, but that's going to turn off people as soon as we start to talk about that. Yet we have to have those values there. They must be there. Where do we put them conceptually in order not to get pushback? Well, there is a place. We can say becoming an admirable person is part of being happy. And we claim that mindfulness Maximizes all dimensions of happiness, including character, aka Shila. Hmm. Hmm. So, in tradition, you were talking about reversing things. Yeah,
0: so yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Traditional Buddhism, Shila Samadhi Prajna. Right. You take the Eightfold Path and you can crunch it down to the Threefold Training.
0: Right, right.
1: Character, concentration, and then wisdom. Mm-hmm. The wisdom is what happens when the concentration is informed with clarity and equanimity. Mm-hmm. Uh the equanimity mm-hmm. is the letting go of craving and aversion. The clarity is the careful observation that leads to, oh, there really is no self thing called mm-hmm. a self here, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the concentration, combined with the clarity and equanimity dimensions, gives you the wisdom. So, Shila Samadhi. Prajna, hmm. character, concentration, but then extended into wisdom. So the eight factors boil down to the four, the three trainings. Um, but um, we can. There's no reason to say that the sila or good character couldn't be thought of as a consequence of concentration, clarity, and equanimity, mm. and wisdom. It's a goal. So if we put good character up at front, then we have to start defining what's good and what's bad. Oh, exploding can of worms. Right, right. But, uh, so if some list that defines good character is equated with mindfulness, then you're gonna get pushback. Right. But generically, we say one of uh, that mindfulness affects positively all dimensions of happiness. And guess what? Have having good character, and you know what else? Serving other people, those are part of happiness, and mindfulness uh, should be applied to those elements of happiness for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't start with a list of what's right and wrong. We'll let you decide that. Right,
0: right, right. So so it's not about, again, we we, uh, veer away from that very narrow definition of specifics um, to come to what constitutes the essence. And even something like serving people um, uh, is something that's not necessarily something that comes from a moral point of view but you could say come from an observation that we evolved to be social animals so that it's in us. It's part of our fulfillment to not just seek individual fulfillment, but, you know, we're wired to also find satisfaction in, um, you know, the sense of being connected.
1: And in fact, a case could be made that that's our defining feature, right? Uh, That's why these, the front part of our brain is so big. Yeah. relative to the other great apes, uh, essentially. Yeah. So why does compassion arise? Well, I'm going to claim it arises for many reasons, not just one. But as you're suffering less, as you are more fulfilled, as you understand yourself at deeper and deeper levels, it is quite natural to want to be of service to others because now you have the um, the breathing room to do that. Whereas before all the bandwidth was taken up with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
0: I'm wondering if maybe this might, this might lead us to a possible way to conclude this um, as uh, defi- I think what you're doing is defining this as a journey where um, following. You know, some curiosity about uh, some uh, characteristics. Um, We're actually developing a better sense of who we are uh, and what makes us happier, and therefore connected to uh, our potential and our, uh, you know, our sense of uh, being human beings.
1: The ancients would be happy to hear that. Aristotle was all about two things. Contracting to find your essence and expanding to realize your full potential.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And this is defining a path to do that.
1: And I'm going to claim that what I'm calling modern mindfulness, which is contemplative practice co-evolving with science and I defined contemplative practice. I didn't define science, but we could get into that. So I'm going to claim that what modern mindfulness represents is the fastest way for that to happen on this planet.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. <laughs> Thanks, Jinzen.
1: This is part of the active pause podcast at ActivePause.com